I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm very happy to welcome to the show my next guest, Ajay Anand, who's founder of Rare Carrot. Ajay, thanks for joining us. Pleasure, Carl. So first, the disclosures, two disclosures, uh, both I'm quite proud of. First, Ajay is uh, Wharton grad 2013 and did take my class, one of the rare people who actually did take my class. So very happy to welcome an alum. And the second disclosure is that I'm an advisor to Rare Carrot, and so I'm, that makes me a shareholder. So I'm highly conflicted here, but as they say, no conflict, no interest. So I'm very happy to have that particular conflict of interest. This is a great pleasure, Ajay. I get to get caught up on, on our business. Absolutely. All right. So uh, first things first, let's point our listeners to your website. It's rarecarrot.com, and that's rare, and then carrot like in diamonds. Ajay, what's the elevator pitch for Rare Carrot? We started with three words, kayak for diamonds, which seemed to resonate, even still resonates, even as we move into other businesses. So kayak for diamonds means exactly what you'd imagine if you've ever used kayak searching for flights, a one-stop place to go and search across multiple vendors, um, kind of the way we're used to doing many other facets of our life, no pun intended. <laughs> okay, so I... Uh, have not actually uh, in part thanks to the fact that my wife is ridiculously low maintenance uh, uh, I've never shopped for a diamond uh, so tell me how it works how, how do you actually use rare carrot yeah. the way you use rare carrot is so we have to rewind a little bit to I guess the big innovation space was Blue Nile and before that obviously diamonds have been bought and sold for generations through brick-and-mortar jewelry shops, and there needs to be a way to communicate the quality of the diamonds. So there's an organization called the GIA, which grades these diamonds on whether now ubiquitous and famous, the four Cs. So carrot, cut, color, and clarity. And the jewelers use this as their nomenclature, both to communicate with consumers and to communicate with each other. Now, Blue Nile came along and brought everything online in about 1999. It was a Stanford grad. And so that kind of uh, brought e-commerce into the into the uh, mix, and we came around 20 years later when there hadn't been all that much innovation in the space. And what we do is we gather from Blue Nile and a host of other online retailers, and we use very similar uh, nomenclature in our search terms. So instead of a flight searching for the days and the times you're looking to leave, you'll search for the carrots and the cut and the clarity you're looking to purchase. Um, and we'll go back and fetch across a number of sites, bring you back the results, and tell you what's a good deal and what's not. And that's complex, but we can get into that as well. Okay. And so when you say Kayak for Diamonds, Kayak was the first site, at least the first mainstream site, to popularize the dynamic search interface in which you're effectively pressing some buttons and adjusting some sliders in a left column and that dynamically updates your results on the right. And that was a very powerful metaphor, use use uh, metaphor that allowed people to quickly search through vast amounts of information. So use that same basic approach, but instead of things like, like, do you want a nonstop or allow for a connection, you would have select some bounds, let's say on color or on clarity or one of those dimensions. Exactly. 
Um, what is a typical, what, what do people pay for diamonds? Your, your typical customer, what are some of the parameters they're looking at? Uh-huh. So I think most people are coming in with a budget. And to simplify things, you can imagine primarily these are engagement ring shoppers, mm-hmm. which is the vast majority of the loose diamond market. And our site has been seeing some pretty stunning numbers. The average transaction is close to 10000 U.S. dollars. Wow. In terms so, of volume. And, and yeah. they come in and trying to get the best they can for whatever their budget is. Yeah. <laughs> so we've had celebrities spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, which we can't disclose, but it really goes up there, the 10K average. Wow. So, so your average customer is you know, putting together uh, quite a bit of money. And, and, and this is a very important purchase for them, typically involves, involves romance and status and impressing and not disappointing and lots of money. So it's a, it's a very fraught decision. Um, what, what do you have to do to get them to be comfortable doing this online? That's a great question. And I don't think, you know, we have a great answer to it. The entire market has been struggling with that question for years. So Blue Nile, like I said, is 20 years old. Blue Nile went private in November in no small part because people still aren't comfortable buying online. Mm-hmm. Blue Nile's top line kind of hovered around $400 million for years. Their bottom line was around the same uh, for years, and they just couldn't grow that market. So I think where I'm sitting is kind of where everybody else is sitting, and I think this is going to be one of the last things to go online in a big way. Mm-hmm. We're probably still only 15% of consumers are ready to a, part with that kind of money online, but B, be able to purchase something that you really need to see to a large extent because mm. every diamond is unique. Okay, then then how can you eliminate friction in that process? So let's say you are the consumer that was comfortable buying online because that's who I was and we can get into the mm. founding story. But So you're this consumer who's ready to you know trade off, obviously, low margins of the e-commerce retailer for the risk of not being able to see it before you fork over your money. Granted, all of the reputable providers have 30-day money-back guarantees. But at that point, um, it's, it's one of, what we take is education. Education is huge. It's a purchase where information asymmetry is probably at its greatest, probably even more than a car or a home. Um, so third-party sites like ours serve a really valuable um, part in the ecosystem by providing education. So education is one of the big things that helps people get comfortable around purchasing them online. The GIA, who I brought up before, in no small part makes people comfortable buying online because they're a third party who's certifying these uh, cut color and clarity of the stone, etc. And then money-back guarantees, which I've also alluded to. 30 days mm-hmm. is kind of the standard in the industry. But even then, I think, you know, it's going to be a long time before this mirrors kind of the other consumption patterns we see in terms of online purchases. All right. You alluded to the origin story, but take us back to the beginning. How did you get started? Kind of solving my own problem. and it, it was, So I got engaged. Simple as that. Mm-hmm. And it sucked. And this has nothing to do with my lovely wife. This has everything to do with this custom we have of spending an inordinate amount of money on, on a diamond. Um, so started the process offline, very quickly decided I would be one of those online purchasers because, you know, I was comfortable with the, with, with the 30 day money back, having an independent appraisal done and sending it back. It didn't work out. 
And so I set off searching, and I just couldn't believe how no one had built a quality meta-search site. And it wasn't like, oh, great business opportunity. It was annoyance mm-hmm. in the fact that you know I had to do it across several hurdles. You know, spending this much money, there's Blue Nile who I'd heard of, but there are a number of other vendors. How many of these are reputable? So I had to go solve for that. Then once I'd solved for that, very early on in your search, you kind of narrow your parameters you're looking for. You know, one carat, H, BS2, these are colors and clarities. But you kind of understand what they mean and you understand for your budget, here's kind of what I'm ready to compromise on, here's what I want. Now, day after day, you're going to, in some cases, 10, 15 different websites or retailers, putting in the same parameters on different user interfaces, trying to record the results, maybe in Excel, um, trying to keep track of what's out there, come back every day, making sure you don't miss something or see something that hits the market. And then what I did was create, you know, I'm no data scientist. I created a very rudimentary regression in Excel because, again, these parameters seemed like they were modelable uh, with relation to price. And I just could not believe that those two things, MetaSearch, just go to these sites and bring it back. You do it in every other facet of my life. And the second piece around data science. So I was sure that this had to exist. So we started kind of hacking this thing together on the side. And um, I think that's actually when I emailed you, Carl, saying, hey, we've got this idea and we're going to go live with it with a terrible name. Um, And you said, stop everything, come up with a better name. But I like the idea. (laughs) Our listeners will know that I'm obsessed about names, but I I just got to rub it in a little bit. Can you even remember (laughs) what what the company was called at the time? I'm not even going to say. The URL was a trip. We look back and we laugh. We're like, what would we have done had we launched with that name? Um, it was Kohinoor, which is actually, in Indian culture, a pretty name because it's the name of a very famous diamond. So everyone I talked to, again, in my self-referential circle thought it was a great idea. It was K-O-H-I-N-O-O-R, which is hard oh enough. Oh, my God. Yeah. But, but it gets worse because, obviously, that domain name we had no chance at. So we put a prefix because we saw a lot of other startups you know, who couldn't own gethoney.com, for example. Right. So it was trykohinoor.com, T-R-Y-K-O-H-I-N-O-O-R.com. We were trying to launch a consumer site with. So. Yeah. All right. I will gloat because I said, <laughs> I said, Ajay, I'll be happy to help, but not if you're going to call your company Trykonohor. <laughs> yep. So, so. Crazy rare carrot was available. Yeah. Um, we've kind of grown into it and grown into loving it. Um, we look back at the other list of names and we're really happy about the one we ended up yeah, using. Good. All right. Well, that was a little bit of a digression, but I want to circle back to the origin story a little bit. You're you're you are not the typical consumer of diamonds who's building a regression model in Excel. Um, but I guess the question I want to ask is. Is, were you looking for an entrepreneurial opportunity, or did this thing sort of hit you over the head and say, you have to do this? Very much the latter, yeah. you know, to the extent where... I, so another piece of data, I was running another startup, uh, enterprise B2B startup, built software now used by the UN and 50 countries, and that was my job. But I was just so sure that something like this had to exist so, you know, we had some tech talent on the team. I even started writing some code myself, started, you know, writing some scrapers and trying to pack something together. And it was exactly that. I knew this had to exist from my own personal experience. And, and given the last year of traction, I think we were right. 
Yeah. So, so, um, just to be clear, you were already running a startup, so you had you had some tech talent available. And so what you did was you you corralled some of that resource to go explore this thing. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And and what did you do uh, now? Now, when you went to answer that question, something like this must exist. Did it exist? Did exist and was just bad, or did it literally not exist? It existed, and it you know it wasn't great. So yeah. I can I'm happy to name them because they're still around, and and, and they do uh, a fair amount of traffic for other reasons. There's a site called PriceScope.com, and it's been around since 1996, 97, and it's just uh, the UI reflects when it was built. Yeah. Um, but it also on the plus side has a forum that has great content on it as well. So it does very well on SEO and, uh, and other things. So it existed. Um, and, and then the more, you know, after we started, we stumbled across a number of other sites that just didn't rank, you know, it's a highly lucrative, I was reading a great, uh, article on affiliates in the mattress space. This is similar. It's a large mm-hmm. ticket item. Customer acquisition cost is high. So it becomes a very lucrative kind of, uh, space for the affiliates in the market. So most of these retailers will happily pay fives, sometimes 7% of the cost. And like I, I told you with the ticket prices, right? You know, 10 grand, even six, seven grand, you do the math, it ends up being a lot of money. So there are a lot of people who set up these affiliate sites on the side. So there were single proprietor sites who kind of did this. No one had really tried to, you know, truly be the kayak or the Zillow in this space and put real mm-hmm. dollars behind it and real talent behind it. And think that's what we're doing now. Yeah, so let's just let me just underscore the economic opportunity because you had quickly done the math, and what you were saying is there's something like five percent available to whoever is aggregating and acquiring the customer, and on a ten thousand dollar average ticket, that's five hundred bucks. So that's Bingo. a lot of money for yeah. for a click, right? That's a lot of money for a click. So. Yeah. Um, so the question, I suppose, is given the economics penciled out, given that the pain point was real, what did you, how did, what did you do next? How did you, did you decide to build a, an MVP? What did you do as the next step? Exactly that. Built an MVP. I think we have a discussion around, you know, do we go ask everyone mm-hmm. for their data and say, hey, we're some small startup trying to build something that will ultimately create price transparency and serve consumers, and then the retailers probably slam, slam the door on us. So we just quietly built a bunch of scrapers, and we launched a site that didn't look that great. There's a great post on our uh, blog post on our site of kind of the evolution of the UI, mm-hmm. and it's it's amazing. Kind of just a couple months later, what it looked like. A couple months later, what it looked like, and there's screenshots in there. So we launched with something that was hideous, probably to start with. Um, and just these today, it's so easy to start to get traffic to your site through Facebook, primarily uh, Google Ads as well. And you can very quickly get data on whether it's working, whether it's not. Um, and so that's how we started. We started small, very quickly. Oh, so to digress for one second, the, probably the most important thing we did was install Intercom on the site. Intercom's a kind of customer chat tool, and I'm just a diehard fan. What that did was create a microphone uh, in the living rooms of every one of our users. And in the first five months something, I can't remember the exact numbers, but we'd exchanged 50,000 messages with our users. And in those 50,000 messages, it became very clear that we were solving a real problem. And it became very clear where our product sucked and what we needed to build next. And so just listening to people and, and prompting them to say something on the other end 
did wonders for, you know, that evolution of what it looked like to what it looked like today. Uh, Ajay, I want to underscore something you just said about your MVP or minimum viable product. And you made, I think, two critical decisions. Actually, you identified three critical decisions. And they were, first, you decided not to ask the retailers for their cooperation. You simply, in your terms, scraped their sites, meaning you used essentially a virtual customer to browse their site, pull the data off, and load it into your database without their permission. The mm-hmm. second is you didn't necessarily, if I recall correctly, prearrange an affiliate relationship with these uh, customers with these retailers. You just started sending them traffic. Exactly. And the third was you instrumented your site with a customer service bot of some kind that allowed you to get very direct connection to the customer. Um, by the way, on that last one, I got to ask you, I just went on the site, I don't know, 90 minutes ago to, to refresh my recollection and the chat bot popped up and it said it was AJ. Was that really you or was that most just the, uh, most of the time it is most of the time it is. And I, you know, so many people have told me investors and advisors like that you should not be wasting your time to do that. But I laugh at them because I have a pulse on the product. I have a pulse on the business. And, you know, maybe one day we'll be big enough that I shouldn't be doing that. But I, today I still feel every day I learn valuable things about our product. And I even have our CTO force him to spend time on it because, and even he admits you spend a bit of time on it, you come away with such a sense of what needs to get built next and rather yeah. than us having our, you know, in a vacuum product road mapping discussions it's you know done for you when you're on when you're on the chat yeah really great insight i hope everyone takes it to heart i want to circle back on that second of those decisions the decision not to negotiate an affiliate deal walk us through your thinking on that well it was part of the same decision it's like we're not going to tell anybody we're doing this if we can prove ourselves valuable quickly the, the, the dynamics of that conversation when we do ask for money change dramatically. I think it was only a month or two um, when we went back to everyone, for some of them, maybe even shorter than that, when we went back to them and said, hey, look at, look at your GA, look at all the traffic, Google Analytics, look at all the traffic we're sending you, take a look at what it's converting. Um, <laughs> you know, for, for most of these guys, we'd very quickly become their number one affiliate partner. Um, so then asking for their data, and we ended up building an API and connecting more formally to their data sources became a much easier conversation. Did did anybody push back on your scraping the data? And or I suppose the more positive way to ask that would be, did anyone volunteer to make that easier for you? No, they did. And I think for the reason that, I mean, so there's so many issues with scraping in terms of people changing the way their site is laid out. And so for us, especially as we became more sophisticated and we needed more data points, um, it became clear that they needed to provide us data feeds directly from their database, either CSV files, which is what we did in the interim before we built the API. And then, I mean, we can go to api.rarecarrot.com and see the actual um, doc, the documentation we have for that API. So to that extent, yes, they did then reach out. Again, it's, it's all about the dollars, right? If you're providing them business and you're bringing them uh, revenue, they're more than happy to work with you. Customer acquisition costs in this industry, like you know, most online industries, is enormous. So, uh, they're usually paying eight to ten percent. So if they can get away with five percent, they're happy to pay that all day long. Yeah. So those are, I mean, those are some really 
interesting strategies and I think quite generalizable, which says if you don't actually need permission to to engage with with partners, it may be a good strategy to just go ahead and do it anyway, get sufficient traction that they'll take you seriously when you make the phone call and say, hey, can we talk? Uh, so, so I think that was uh, that's something I really want to underscore for our listeners. Right. Yeah, I agree. All right. Um, tell us a little bit about actually getting this this site built. Um, you, my recollection is you were able to get some resources from IBM. Ah, uh, yeah. So that was also coincidental and nice. Um, there's a program called the IBM Global Entrepreneurship Program. Um, so there's uh, a guy here in the city named Bruce Weed. There's another guy who was there named Louis Leon, and we met them pretty early on. And it was totally an idea. And I said, "Hey, I got engaged. I'm thinking of building this." They said, "Hey, well, IBM provides uh, cloud credits uh, to get you up and running." I was like, "Okay, great. That'll be one more expense off the table." But it went further than that because you know our cloud credits went from 2k a month to 10k a month as we you know won competitions within IBM. Out of 10,000 startups in the global uh, IBM entrepreneurship program, placed in the top 50, um, and we became kind of a higher profile within IBM, which connected us to even more opportunities, specifically around uh, the NLP AI that we uh, ended up building in partnership with IBM. So there are these guys in an office called the IBM Competitive Projects Office, who um, demoed a bot that walked a, you know, I, I don't remember the client, but you can imagine an REI type right. client. And it helped, uh, the demo I just remember vividly was a guy coming in saying, I'm looking to buy a tent and then ask some specific questions around the tent. You know, who's it for? What's it for? It's for my wife and I, what kind of camping do you do? Um, and I was able to recommend a tent. And I said, Oh wow. Like here we're sitting on diamonds. It's like the most structured, of, you know, dream product for a bot. And so we started talking. They, they agreed completely with that. And so, you know, to the extent where they were writing lines of code with us on our Slack channels, were fantastic working with us and building Rocky, who's now our AI bot, who's trained daily by a gemologist. And um, so there are opportunities out there. I think IBM's, you know, making an effort to catch up in the cloud and AI game and use their strengths there. And so they were able to step in and, and provide a lot of support, you know, early on, especially when we weren't making as much money. Yeah, and I, and I, something else I would underscore, I'm not sure if you would agree, is at least from a semi-outside perspective, anytime a startup can hitch its wagon to a credible brand, there's some social proof involved there. So it at least said, hey, there's some smart people at IBM that thought this was worth some resources, and that gives you a little bit of social proof. It, it differentiates you from the fly-by-night competitors who are trying to do similar things. Oh, no doubt. I think that yeah. there are a couple brands early on that we were able to, as you say, hitch our wagons to. Like, We got very lucky. We, did, we still today haven't engaged a PR company, but early on I just had sent some LinkedIn messages and one landed in, uh, I said, we're in stealth, we're looking to launch this diamond-related startup and swim it, you know. She is a Forbes contributor, but she'd just written a book on diamonds. She said, oh, sure, we'll catch up for a coffee. So, like, you know, right around launch, we got this article in Forbes, which, just, I mean, went viral. It's got something like 300,000 views at this point, which is pretty high for even one of those articles. Um, so that was brand one, and then brand two is IBM. And, again, people make such quick associations. Rare Carrot maybe now is starting to mean something small in some consumers' minds, but being able to be attached to 
those brands is again consumers make such quick decisions of whether I'm going to you know pursue this thing or give it any sort of credibility, especially when we're talking such a huge purchase. Um, so I don't know if they're conscious decisions on our part or it was just luck, but it makes a huge difference. Yeah. So seeing IBM and Forbes on your website definitely works. And, and so, I mean, I think that's the generalizable principle, which is when you don't have any brand equity yourself, it makes some sense to affiliate with somebody who does. And yep. in both those cases, that was very smart. I, I wonder if you, you talk a little bit more about about PR, and I suppose the more general topic is customer acquisition. So how, how do you acquire customers, and how important has PR been in that process? PR has not, honestly, not been the driver of traffic mm-hmm. for us. Mm-hmm. It's been a driver of credibility. Mm-hmm. And so if, even now, if you go on our about page, I think yesterday... Um, the day before we did the interview with CNBC and then USA Today picked it up. And it's to that point when you're able to link to articles where we're quoted as, you know, industry experts on engagement rings in USA Today and CNBC, that, that has a huge effect on consumer minds. When you actually look at the traffic numbers, there, you know, you can get that traffic for much cheaper than the, than the effort that goes into obtaining that PR. So I see PR mm-hmm. as kind of a legitimacy strategy. Not to mention, of course, SEO, which is its own complex topic. And as of late, we've started to, you know, rank on page one for terms like buy diamonds, which yeah. we never would have expected just a year ago. Um, yeah. um, so those are the two things I see PR is really helping with. And again, it's not like we've got the kind of PR that, you know, Inc. Magazine did a profile on, you know, how rare care is disrupting the diamond industry and, it's gotten hundreds of thousands of shares and views. I'm sure that has an effect. We haven't experienced that. Mm-hmm. Um, but by and large, I see you know customer acquisition comes from paid, comes from paid mm-hmm. channels, and it's mm-hmm. so easy to get you know tens of thousands of people a month just through Facebook and Google. It's not an obscene amount of money. Um, so and to get that kind of traffic from a you know from a journalistic source, would be extremely extremely difficult. So I see yeah. them as kind of different buckets actually. Yeah. All right. We only have about 30 seconds, but I got to ask you, uh, in a prior career, you were an actor with an aspiring Bollywood career. Uh, what's been the relevance of Bollywood acting for being the CEO of Rare Care? Anything? Uh, I think, yeah, rejection, right? (laughs) You just, I mean, as hard as entrepreneurship is, being an actor is definitely harder. All day long, you're just hearing no, and it's such a beating. Um, so entrepreneurship is refreshingly, you hear yes way more often than you hear as an actor. So it becomes easier in that regard emotionally. Wow. That I wasn't expecting that answer. So the one thing where you get one, uh, uh, profession where you get more rejection than entrepreneurship is being an actor. So that's, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, Ajay, we're out of time, but thanks so much for making the time to join us. It was a pleasure, Carl. All right, to keep up with Rare Carrot, visit their website, rarecarrot.com. And you can also follow them on Twitter, at Rare Carrot. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM, Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.